Welcome to Addressing Alaskans, where we feature community conversations around South Central Alaska. Join us on Alaska Public Media as we travel throughout our community and listen to local groups discuss what matters to them. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Ammon Swenson. Today's episode features the Anchorage Economic Development Corporation's three-year outlook luncheon. It covers topics including population, employment, and local industries. Speakers include Anchorage Mayor Dave Bronson, AEDC President and CEO Bill Pop, and keynote speaker Mick Cornett, a four-term mayor of Oklahoma City. We'll have the full report linked on the Addressing Alaskans page on alaskapublic.org. And just a quick note that Bill Pop is a member of Alaska Public Media's board of directors. Mayor Dave Bronson speaks next. I'd like to start off here uh, by uh, talking about what we've moved forward on in the last couple of years here in the city uh, and how we looked at uh, how we are looking at uh, reinventing and re, uh, visualizing our city and rebuilding our city. Uh, I, I love these kind of events, quite frankly, because of the conversations that we, that we have and, uh, and what comes of those conversations, because quite frankly, the people in this room are the shakers and the mover, movers that are going to get uh, Anchorage moving again and, uh, and, and therefore get Alaska uh, moving again. First, I want to start off with some exciting news I announced uh, earlier this week. After three years of being used as a homeless shelter, I announced that the Sullivan Arena is being returned to the people of Anchorage and will begin operating very soon as a sporting and event center for our entire state. I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to the, the things that are coming to the Sullivan Arena, the sporting venues, the entertainment venues, the graduations, uh, and that will happen for many years to come, and I think we're looking forward to that. The operator of that facility, which is O'Malley Ice and Sports, led by longtime Anchorage business, businessman Steve Agney, has been successfully running the Ben Boki and, Dem- and Dempsey arenas for the last year. They've already brought revenues in those facilities back up to 2017 and 2018 levels, so we certainly hope that they will accomplish the same with the Sully. So you know the Sullivan is in very good condition, and with a simple facelift, I think we will find ourselves with a modern and contemporary event venue. As we talk about getting things back to how they were before COVID, I'd like to turn to our economy. Anchorage unemployment is at 3.6%. And for any employer in the room, you know what that means. That means it's tough to find employees. The city finds it tough, tough, and the state finds it tough as well. Additionally, based on data from the Alaska Department of Labor, it looks like we've added 3,500 jobs in Anchorage since last June. That's an incredible accomplishment because that's how we move this city forward economically. Since coming into office, we've helped create 6,800 jobs in Anchorage by advancing a pro-growth, pro-business agenda that didn't involve lockdowns, mandates, or punishing business or simply trying to be successful. Over the last year, we undertook further Title 21 rewrites in coordination with the Assembly to spur development and are carefully evaluating the latest proposal to overhaul our zoning codes. We just need to be cautious and smart and strategic as to how we do that. Right now, we are developing our 2024 budget. Our intention with this budget is to lower property taxes and come in under the tax cap. I've asked my directors to propose scenarios that would envision a flat budget, uh, a 2% cut budget, and a 4% cut budget. 
to lower property taxes, we must reduce the budget, as spending drives the level of taxes that need to be collected. My budget will be presented in October, and I look forward to the community's input on that. Lastly, before I turn it back to Bill, I want to touch on how the Port of Alaska Modernization Program is coming along. Last fall, we were awarded the largest federal grant of any port in the country, that's in the entire country, of nearly $70 million. And that's under a federal DOT maritime program that awards grants to ports. We have to thank uh, Senators Sullivan and Murkowski for that. Though we didn't secure further state funding from the state legislature, uh, we were able to hold off serious attempts to claw back the $200 million they awarded us last year, and that was a great accomplishment for us. We've secured other grants thanks to strong work with our congressional delegation and expect to see more federal funding coming our way for the port. This spring, we commissioned and welcomed the first ships to the seismically resilient petroleum and cement terminal. This $219 million project will ensure Alaska has a reliable and safe supply of fuel and cement in the event of a large earthquake. The Assembly and I recently agreed to the construction design for Cargo Terminal 1, and we will soon reach agreement on uh, that design for Cargo Terminal 2. We also agreed to user fees that will help us go after more state and federal grants. Construction at the north end of the port has also begun to shore up that portion of the facility. All said, we are on track to begin construction of the docks in 2025 and reach food security for Alaska in 2027 or early 2028. Once we get one cargo terminal, the first cargo terminal uh, built to modern seismic standards, we will have achieved what we've been searching for for a long time, and that's food security for the state of Alaska. Just remember, our port feeds 90% and supplies 90% of the people in this state. This fact alone is why I've made rebuilding the port my number one objective. And I believe we are well on our way to accomplishing this goal. So, again, I want to say thanks to Bill and ADC for this great event and for all that you all do uh, to make this city and this state better. And I simply ask that just keep doing what you're doing and we will be successful. Bill? It's good to see a sellout again. Thank you all for being here today. Let's give ourselves a round of applause. It's a great room. Well, hello, everyone. It is my pleasure to present AEDC's three-year outlook for the Anchorage economy for 2023. Got about 20 minutes worth of work here to do and get a lot of information out, so bear with me. I'm going to be focusing more on the script than I am looking up. I apologize for that. As our chair, Laura Edmondson, noted, AEDC is optimistic about the future of Anchorage in the coming years, due in no small part to the Choose Anchorage initiative AEDC launched in January, which you will be hearing a lot more about in today's program. Now, we see job growth on the horizon and new investments seeking opportunities in our city and state. We have every reason to be excited about the future of Anchorage, but we are also facing unprecedented challenges that must be met head-on as we enter a new era for Anchorage and Alaska. There is a lot of data and information in this report that will, be go, that will go beyond the time that we have to cover it today, so we will also be releasing a series of video overviews of the report next week 
The research for the three-year outlook report, which was begun with this crew 15 years ago when I said, hey, let's do a three-year outlook, five-year outlook. They agreed with me on a three-year outlook. They weren't too sure about five. But uh, I want to deeply thank our good friends at McKinley Research for all the hard work that they do on this report. Give them a round of applause. Let's first focus on several macro elements of the economy that provide context for our discussion, starting with personal income. Anchorage has seen a long streak of increased personal income growth, and that trend continued in 2022, reaching a record high total of $22.2 billion. This metric includes wages and salaries, which, by the way, rose by 9.1% in 2022. Investment income, as well as payments from government, including Social Security, very small amounts of unemployment benefits, since hardly anybody's on unemployment, and the PFD. The rising income for the community is a driving force behind our services-based consumer economy in Anchorage, and the future bodes well for this trend to continue with projected new record-setting years for 2024 through 2026. Always a great way to start a presentation with good news like this. Additional good news is that your income should begin to go a little further in the future with the recent good news on inflation. Just released data for inflation in Anchorage shows that annual inflation decreased at a rate, and get this, negative 3.3% in the June report. Now, part of this surprising decline is a fairly significant data issue with the June 2022 inflation data and I love this wording, that is believed to have likely inflated the rate of inflation by as much as 5%. This year's June data appears to correct that error. It's unlikely that we will be, see a continued negative rate of inflation in the, future, in the near future. But just the same as this graph clearly demonstrates, inflation in Anchorage is down significantly, and that is really good news for Anchorage and Alaska. Let's now turn to the oil and gas industry for more good news on the horizon. Every year, AEDC projects both the price of a barrel of oil and amount of oil production as a measure of the health of this key industry that affects practically every aspect of the Alaskan economy. After several years of declining production, government and industry analysts are now forecasting the beginnings of what could be a long-term trend of increasing daily oil production for Alaska, something we haven't heard in decades. Especially with the Pickup Project moving forward into construction and the Willow Project hopefully following soon after. These two projects could generate over 5,000 construction jobs, hundreds of production jobs, and as much as 260,000 barrels per day combined of new oil production that will significantly offset expected production declines in legacy fields on the North Slope. Now, the biggest challenge facing both projects is how to find and engage the skilled workers that will be needed in the face of a national shortage in practically all the skill sets required, especially for an Alaskan labor force that is shrinking. While it is not likely Alaska will reach the previous record high levels of oil and gas employment last seen in 2015, these projects will definitely have a big positive impact on the economy of Anchorage and Alaska over the next decade. Let's now turn to the outlook for the air cargo industry. This sector has emerged over the last decade as a key foundation of the Anchorage economy. 
based on AEDC's recently completed economic analysis that was performed by the McKinley Research Group. Anchorage International Airport is the source of one out of seven jobs in Anchorage, direct, indirect, and induced. With over 53,000 cargo flight landings in 2022, Anchorage International Airport saw over 3.5 million metric tons of cargo that year that vaulted Anchorage's airport past Shanghai to become the third busiest cargo airport in the world. In the coming three years, AEDC forecasts modest growth in total cargo tonnage annually, further assuring the importance of Anchorage International Airport to our economy. The Port of Alaska continues to demonstrate its critical role as the key logistics facility for the Alaska economy. Moving over 5 million tons of cargo in 2022, the Port of Alaska is the key entry point for consumer goods, construction materials, jet and motor fuels that are consumed by 90% of Alaska's population. Named as a key strategic port for the defense of the United States, the Port of Alaska provides critical support to the military in Alaska. AEDC applauds recent decisions of the Anchorage Assembly to advance the modernization program for the port to assure the continued flow of goods and materials vital to the success of Alaska's communities and quality of life of Alaskans. And we offer those same congratulations to Mayor Bronson for his continued push to advance the port. AEDC forecasts continued modest growth in tonnage transiting through the port of Alaska through 2026. Tourism is another strong foundational element of the Anchorage economy, and we are going to review two key indicators for this sector, air passenger volumes at Anchorage International Airport and visitor taxes. Let's first look at the air passenger volumes. Now, after the COVID disaster of 2020 that tanked air passenger volumes, 2022 was a rock-solid year for this indicator with over 5.3 million passenger emplanements, people getting on or off an airplane at Anchorage International Airport. For 2023, AEDC is projecting nearly 5.7 million passenger emplanements with continued growth to near record high levels by 2026. Boomers are driving a significant part of this trend with the remaining 41 million working-age boomers under age 64 all turning 65 within the next six years. This is an almost guaranteed boost in tourism numbers to Alaska through the end of the decade. So how does this benefit the Anchorage economy? Well, besides the thousands of year-round and seasonal jobs created by the tourism industry to serve the millions of visitors coming to Alaska in the coming years, we also receive direct tax revenues from visitors through a 12% hotel room tax on hotel stays and an 8% rental vehicle tax on rental cars and RVs here in Anchorage. Now, while AEDC does not project future years for these taxes, we are forecasting a record high year of hotel tax and rental vehicle taxes in 2023. Tourism is a significant contributor to both our economy and our government, and the future looks bright for this sector in the coming years. So we've reviewed several parts of the Anchorage economy that show great promise for our economic future in the coming years. Always start your presentation with the good news first. But now we need to examine aspects of our economy that are not as rosy. While 2022 saw a modest increase in permit values for construction at just over $460 million, the overall activity levels in construction remain significantly below levels seen a decade ago during the last building boom in Anchorage. 
labor force shortages in both architectural and engineering sectors, combined with a severe labor shortage in the construction sector, are having a serious negative effect on overall construction activities in Anchorage and Alaska. We don't have the skilled workforce needed to design and build projects. As a result, projects are being impacted by escalating labor costs, significantly delayed design and construction schedules, and many projects now being designed and constructed by out-of-state firms, a trend that is likely to increase in the future. AEDC's outlook is for total building permit values to basically tread water over the next three years. Now, I want to take a bit of a deeper dive into the housing market. Construction of new single-family housing continues to lag in Anchorage with only 180 units completed in 2022, the lowest level of production in the last decade. The reason for the lack of new construction of single-family homes are many. High labor costs, high land costs due to a lack of available building sites in the Anchorage Bowl, permitting and zoning complexities, high interest rates, and building material supply chain issues all contribute to the high cost and lack of production of single-family homes. This, is, this clearly underscores that there is no single solution to this problem. But it is critical we develop solutions in combination to address this challenge if we are to reverse the continuing loss of working-age adults in Anchorage. In a recent national survey of 1,000 adults that recently moved to a new community in search of a new job or a new place to live, their top three factors in deciding on a new city to move to were cost of living, housing availability, and the cost of housing. If we are to attract and retain the workers in all skill categories that Anchorage needs to maintain and grow the economy, our city must innovate rapidly and rapidly implement new housing policies and initiatives to overcome our housing shortage. Let's turn to the main part of today's presentation, jobs and labor force. We begin this section with how jobs are faring so far in 2023, and the story is very, very positive. In the preliminary data for the first six months of 2023, Anchorage added 3,400 jobs, with almost all sectors contributing to these gains except for financial and information sectors that have seen slight declines. The unemployment rate for the first six months of, Anchor, uh, of 2023 is a stunningly low average 3.2%, which represents an average of 4,900 workers per month actively seeking a job so far this year. The challenge is, is that there have been about 1,000 less people looking for work per month so far in 2023 compared to last year for the same period, a nearly 17% decline in active job seekers. The decline in job seekers is not because there are a lot of people sitting on the sidelines instead of seeking a job. 70% of 16 and older citizens of Anchorage are in the active labor force, which is 7% higher than the U.S. average of 63%. Rather, it's all about a surge in job demand coming on at the same time Anchorage is suffering from a decline in working age adults. Let's first look at the surge in job demand. The AEDC Real-Time Jobs Report provides a quarterly report on total jobs, the kind of jobs posted, wages being offered, and how many, individual, how many jobs individual employers are posting. If you are an employer trying to figure out what your competition is up to in the labor force search, this is the report for you. 
In 2022, the Anchorage and Matsu area saw just over 65,500 jobs posted by employers. I'll say it again, 65,000 plus jobs posted last year. Well, for the first half of 2023, just over 47,600 jobs have already been posted this year, a 7.6% increase over the same six months in 2022. In effect, we have twice as many jobs avail uh, 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 being posted as available workers, a clear indication that we have a serious problem with the size of our labor force. So where are we headed in the future? 21 and 22 saw recent record high job uh, rates of job growth, and 2023 is looking to be another good year. But as we look forward to the next three years, the lack of available workers will remain a barrier to, uh, to continued significant job growth. AEDC projects that the rate of job growth during the next three years will slow to half the rate of the growth we have seen in 21 through 2023, even in the face of ever-increasing job posting demand. It boils down to a simple fact. Our labor force has shrunk significantly in the last decade and will continue to shrink in the coming years. Let's drill down into this problem. We'll first dive into our general population trends, which shows a mixed set of positive and negative facts. In 2023, AEDC projects that Anchorage will finally, after a long period of decline, turn the corner on population loss and will see a point, a whopping 0.3% increase in overall population. I was being a little sarcastic there with the trend continuing ever so slightly for the next three years. A recent spike in births and continued decline in deaths are the main drivers of this trend, but more babies being born today contributes to a future labor force a couple of decades from now. But even that future opportunity is undermined by the fact that one-third of our youth will leave Anchorage for the lower 48 and not come back by the time they turn 26 based on recent Census Bureau research. We're losing one out of three of our youth, so there's already a loss in that future opportunity. And while returning uh, retirees living longer is a good thing, I, I, I feel that, these are individuals who are becoming increasingly focused on enjoying the remaining years of their life and less interested in working. Neither are solutions to the labor force challenges we face today and in the coming decades. Now, since 2013, Anchorage has lost 18,600 working-age adults between 16 and 64 from our population. And over the next three years, AEDC projects Anchorage will lose another 2,900 working-age adults for a net loss of 21,500 working-age adults from 2013 to 2026. That equals a 10% loss of 16 to 64-year-old adults since 2013. We've lost one out of 10 of the workers that we used to have. Let that sink in for a moment. This graphic further demonstrates we have a growing number of non-working age citizens in Anchorage who are kids and retirees. Kids are an important investment in the future success of our city, and retirees are consumers of services provided by the economy. But kids and seniors, for the most part, are not involved in the delivery of services our community needs for a growing economy and healthy city we all want to call home. We need new strategies to get Anchorage back on track to a bright and prosperous future.
Now, as I end this presentation, let's look at the big picture. Anchorage and Alaska are witnessing a weird combination of big economic opportunities that are mostly a sure thing combined with significant economic threats that could lead to decades of stagnation and decline. Billions of dollars of new investments from the oil industry and additional billions coming from Congress and consumer spending like tourism in the next seven years juxtaposed to critical workforce shortages that could significantly undermine the benefits of those billions in new spending. What kind of economic benefit will come to our communities if most of, the, of those oil and infrastructure projects are designed by workers living outside of Alaska and built by shift workers flying in and out of Alaska every two to three weeks? If you think this is an unbelievable scenario, I have news for you. It's already happening. In Anchorage, 12% of our jobs are being held by workers who live in Alaska but live outside the city of Anchorage mainly in the Matsu. In addition, here's the punchline, 13% of jobs that are currently exist in Anchorage are being held by workers who do not live in Alaska, by remote workers and workers flying in and out of Anchorage for the week, month, or season. 25% of current jobs that exist in Anchorage are currently held by someone who does not live in Anchorage. One out of four of our jobs. And these numbers will continue to only in, likely only increase in the coming years, given our current situation. Cities and companies across the U.S. are ruthlessly competing to steal workers from other cities and other companies. Quality of life elements are a key weapon being used in this national war for talent. Cities are currently winning the talent. The, excuse me. Cities currently winning the talent war are reinvesting in themselves and spending money to improve their sales pitch to workers all over the country to move to their city. These are active and aggressive sales pitches that are saturating social media and direct marketing channels, and these are pitching Alaska workers to move to communities in the lower 48. Now, other cities across the country have tried strategies of getting state or federal money to pay for the needs of their city with limited success. In a few minutes, we are going to receive a master class in how Oklahoma City made the decision to make significant investments in itself and have turned a city on the edge of collapse in 1993 into one of the top performing cities in America today. <sighs> Ladies and gentlemen, we have a very bright future. I do not want you walking out of here thinking anything else. But we have a hard, hard decisions to make in the coming months and years that will either set us on a path of e to economic and community success or on a path to mediocrity and decline. It is for all of us to make an individual choice on which path we take. AEDC hopes you will all choose Anchorage. This concludes this year's three-year outlook presentation. Again, AEDC reports can be found on our website at aedcweb.com. Thank you so much for your attention. And now it is my pleasure to introduce today's keynote speaker, four-term former Oklahoma City Mayor Mick Cornett. I warned him I was going to send him up. Hang on. I got some words to say. Mick Cornett was born and raised in Oklahoma City. From an early age, his parents taught him the value of public service and encouraged him to keep, keep the faith, work hard, and dream big. Former Mayor Cornett led a thriving community that reflects the same, these same principles his parents instilled in him. 
He has been honored by various organizations and publications as the top mayor in Oklahoma and the United States. And an international panel selected then-Mayor Cornette as the second best mayor in the world. His leadership was instrumental in bringing the NBA to Oklahoma City. So sad, so sorry, Seattle. And he famously put the entire city on a diet to raise awareness on the national issue of obesity. During his time in office, Oklahoma City invested in itself nearly $2 billion in schools and infrastructure dedicated to improving the city's quality of life over the 14 years that he was mayor. That investment has since generated nearly $6 billion in private investment in his community. Ladies and gentlemen, AEDC is both proud and honored to welcome Mayor Mick Cornett to the 2023 AEDC Economic Outlook Luncheon. Um, how many of you have not been to Oklahoma City and have no idea who I am? <laughs> Most of you. Okay, well, let's, let's start with a little history lesson. You've heard the saying that Rome was not built in a day. Well, we were. I mean, quite literally. On a spring day in 1889, the federal government held what they called a land run. Now, a land run is when you line up a lot of really desperate people along an imaginary line, and someone fires off a gun, and the settlers roared across the countryside and put a stake in the ground. And wherever they put that stake was their new home. The population of Oklahoma City went from zero to 10,000 in one day. And our planning department is still paying for that. A land run was not the best idea, as you can imagine. Can you, can you visualize the calamity at the land's claim office at the end of that first day with multiple claimants all claiming the same piece of land? The citizens got together in that chaos, and they elected a mayor, and then they shot him. <laughs> I don't find that particularly funny. <laughs> But I appreciate the feedback. It lets me see what type of audience I'm really dealing with here. Early on, Oklahoma City kind of established a pattern that would continue for, gosh, almost 100 years, and that was not having a diversified economy. Early on, they were basing their economy on the price of cotton, uh, later on the price of wheat, ultimately on the price of oil and natural gas. But what happens when your economy is based solely on a commodity is your, your, your economy goes like this. And if you look at Oklahoma City and Oklahoma's economy in that first hundred years of its existence, that's kind of what it seemed like. It was the best of times or it was the worst of times. Well, I was growing up in Oklahoma City in the you know, 60s and 70s, and the 70s were, were kind of the best of times. The price of oil was going up. We had an oil and gas-based economy. And it just seemed like it would never, never end. These good times were just continuing, and our business community was continuing to invest in the oil and gas industry, and we thought, well, this is, this is fantastic, until it wasn't. And on a day in 1982, we had a, a bank in a shopping center close. It didn't seem like a really important bank, but they had taken out a lot of energy loans, and that bank failed to meet its obligations. Now, at, at that time in American history, banks hadn't been failing. It had been several decades since, since a bank had failed, so it was still kind of relatively new. But that bank triggered an economic calamity in the state of Oklahoma, 
And by the end of the 1980s, over 100 banks had failed in the state of Oklahoma. Now, you're probably thinking, I can't imagine Oklahoma even had 100 banks. Well, we did, but not many more than that. And by the end of the 1980s, Oklahoma and Oklahoma City's economy was at rock bottom. We probably had the worst economy in the country. The price of oil, which had been around $40 at the beginning of that decade, had dropped down to about 10 And with it, it went not just our oil and gas industry, which was our largest employer, but it also took our real estate industry down with it, and it took our banking industry down with it. So, you know, you lose banks, you lose real estate, you lose your oil and gas industry. You don't have much left. Now, from a government standpoint, tax proceeds were just declining. They were in a free fall. And if you're interested in local government and how local government is funded, you can imagine the state of Oklahoma City's tax base at the end of that decade as the economy just continued its downward trajectory. Well, in the midst of this freefall, the citizens elected a business-minded mayor named Ron Nork. Now, Ron's father had also been a mayor in, in a previous time, but it would be wrong to think of these two as some sort of political dynasty. They, they were business leaders. They were just lending their knowledge base and time to serving the city as the mayor. And so Ron Norick ran for office in the late 1980s saying we have to create jobs. And boy, that sounded good to a desperate group of Oklahoma City voters. And Ron Norick was ushered into office with great fanfare. So now he came to office and he was thinking to himself, well, i got to go out and, and find these jobs that I promised. And lo and behold, by coincidence, United Airlines was offering what was really the economic development opportunity of the decade. They were going to build a maintenance facility for their fleet of 737s. It was going to employ five to 10,000 people, and the annual economic impact to whatever local economy could land this opportunity was going to be about a billion dollars a year. And Mayor Norick zeroed in on this opportunity, knowing that there would be heavy competition, but he was trusting in Oklahoma City's ability to pull this off. And he spent over a year of his time working on getting this passed. Now, economic development measures in those days weren't nearly as advanced as they are today. You kind of had to be creative if you really wanted to compete or if you really wanted to punch above your weight. And so Mayor Norick came up with this really inventive idea. He said, what if we pass a sales tax for a certain number of years and we give all that money to United so they can build their facility? In other words, we would tax ourselves and we would build the facility for United and they would rent it for some nominal amount every year, but they would bring the jobs that our community so desperately needed. And he took this idea to United. And United said, well, Mayor, that's a, that's a grand idea, but there's no way your citizens are going to vote to tax themselves to give us the money. Well, United underestimated the desperation of Oklahoma City. That sales tax passed with 62% of the vote, pending United's approval of, of taking it and moving these jobs to Oklahoma City. And so United went through this incredibly detailed process to try and determine where in the United States to land this facility. But as you can imagine, Oklahoma City's offer was really, really enticing, and it started moving it through all of the repercussions of getting down into the final days. Now, as you know, economic development work 
a lot of times it's behind the scenes, or at least the people involved try to keep it behind the scenes. But remember, this had been involved with a sales tax and an election, and so this was extremely high profile. I mean, this was banner headlines in the newspaper. This was leading off the 10 o'clock news at night on our television sets. This became a very high-profile opportunity to Oklahoma City, and we started to get our hopes up. And United called a press conference at its headquarters in Chicago, and the local TV stations from Oklahoma City all flew in, and the newspaper reporters flew in, and it was carried live back in Oklahoma. And the CEO from United stood before the microphones, and he said, we've decided to build this facility in Indianapolis. And it was about that quiet back in Oklahoma City. We were, we were stunned. I mean, we couldn't believe that with this you know, very generous economic development opportunity that United would tell us no. Well, you can imagine Mayor Norick's future at this point. Things weren't going well at City Hall. Mayor Norick, to his credit, called a press conference, said he really didn't know what went wrong. And, uh, you know, they would try to do better in the future. And then he got on the phone with United. And he said, you got to tell us what went wrong. We don't understand. I mean, this, this was an incredible presentation we gave you. And they, they just cut him off right there. They said, Mayor, you did everything right. You were the most courteous. You were the most prompt when we asked for information. You just finished second. No hard feelings. And Mayor Norick, to his credit, insisted that they get more information, more feedback than that. We got to learn from this. Where did we go wrong? And United came clean. They said, well, Mayor, unbeknownst to you and the other leadership in Oklahoma City, we sent some of our mid-level executives and their spouses and had them spend a weekend in downtown. And they filed a report and came back and presented it to the board. And after looking at that report, we came to the conclusion that we could not go to Oklahoma City because we couldn't imagine forcing our employees to have to live there. The quality of life in Oklahoma City had sunk so low that we could seemingly not buy the allegiance of corporate America at any price. So Mayor Norick comes back to Oklahoma City, and, and to his credit, he did two proactive things. One, he explained to the other business leaders exactly what had happened, and two, he went to Indianapolis. Now, he did not move there, but at this stage of his political career, it probably crossed his mind. When he got to Indianapolis, he rented a car at the airport, and he drove downtown, and he really was amazed at what he saw. As he drove down to the urban core of Indianapolis, he saw sports arenas and water features and large apartment buildings and retail opportunities. He saw shopping opportunities. The, the core of the city was alive and well, and he realized that when contrasting that to Oklahoma City, it was a drastic difference. You see, the people in Indianapolis had caught on to this paradigm shift in economic development. We thought the idea was to incentivize businesses to come. Indianapolis had already figured out it's really about investing in your own city and creating a city where people want to live, knowing the jobs will follow. So Mayor Norick came back to Oklahoma City, explained to the other business leaders his, his new plan, and he took the advice of really what he'd seen, he, you know, the citizens had passed this sales tax election for that P-1 
penny that would not be enacted because United had turned it down. But he said, you know, if they're willing to pay money, their tax base, to, to, for, to other people, to strangers from out of town, maybe they're willing to invest in themselves. And he came up with this initiative, which is now famous in Oklahoma City circles, as called MAPS, Metropolitan Area Projects. And with MAPS, the idea was we're going to invest in the urban core. So it was your typical economic development drivers like a better convention center, a, a better expo center at the fairgrounds. Uh, there was a new library involved, some improvements at the Performing Arts Center. Um, they had this abandoned warehouse district. And the idea was to build a canal through this abandoned warehouse district to start a San Antonio-style uh, entertainment district out of it. Mayor Norick even had the audacity to believe that we could put water in our river. <laughs> now, I happen to see your rivers here, and it appears your rivers came complete with water. <laughs> Ours did not. Growing up in Oklahoma City, I, I was always puzzled by the fact that we had this huge ditch downtown that the grown-ups called the river. And I can remember being in middle school and looking in my geography books and seeing the rivers of the world. And I'm thinking, yeah, it doesn't look anything like our river. Well, turns out back in the 1920s, that river had flooded a couple of times, and city leadership went to the Corps of Engineers and said, you've got to help us. You've got to make sure that river doesn't flood anymore. Well, they did. They took all the water out of our river and left us with this dry, dusty gulch that went right through the heart of downtown. Well, Mayor Norick's idea included building some low-water dams and impounding water. And even though the water wouldn't be going anywhere, at least there'd be water in the river. And that was the most popular of the ideas that Mayor Norick could present to the citizens. They didn't really understand all these other capital projects he had, but good grief, if you can put water in the river, that would be really cool. So they hold an election, and the, election's not, the, the campaign is not going well. In fact, the polling is just awful. I mean, some of the polling on some of the projects was running at like 12%. And Mayor North's got to get 50%. So finally, in, in desperation in the final days, he, he kind of goes to the voters and in a very common sense, no-nonsense way, says, look, even if no one ever moves to Oklahoma City because of maps, and even if no one ever creates a job in Oklahoma City because of maps, the worst scenario is we'll have a better city for us. Maybe it'll increase our chances of keeping our young people who were leaving in large numbers for places like Dallas and California. And so they go to the polls, and on that fateful day in December of 1993, MAPS passes with 52% of the vote. Interesting, today you can't find anyone who will admit they voted against it. <laughs> because ultimately it would change everything. But I think it's worth pointing out that it didn't change everything immediately. In fact, the proposal once passed was over budget, underfinanced, and behind schedule. And there really aren't three things worse for any initiative than to be well, over budget, underfinanced, and behind the timetable that you had promised. But that's where MAPS was a year and a half after the vote. Very controversial. I think if the citizens would have had a chance to vote again. They probably would have voted it back out. But it was in the wake of that kind of negativity that still existed in the mid-90s when Oklahoma City is struck with the largest act of domestic terrorism in United States history. A bomb goes off downtown. 
and 168 people are murdered at 9 o'clock on a Wednesday morning. And so I think it's important to kind of visualize where Oklahoma City is on, on the timetable now. This is, a, this is a generation of people who had already been through this economic collapse of the 80s, and they'd been promised hope with United Airlines and had those hopes dashed. They had been promised hope with maps, and here we were a year and a half later, and maps had produced nothing but negativity. And now, weighing on their collective shoulders is the emotional burden of this extremely large mass murder. And something very interesting occurred that was only really truly conceptualized and and accepted years later. Something that happened in the months and years that followed that event was the citizens of Oklahoma City grabbed hands, pulled each other up, and dared the world to pull them apart. There was a unity based on those combined emotional experiences. And really what I liken it to is, is, it's just like any two people that go through a really tough emotional experience typically come out of that experience with a certain bond that only the two of them really truly understand and appreciate. Well, this was an entire city that had been through this emotional roller coaster. And that binding of the city is in some respects still around today. The MAPS program starts producing elements. The baseball stadium opens up. The sports arena opens up. The canal opens up. Things are starting to look better. Mayor Norick leaves office. New mayor comes in and quickly realizes that, yeah, downtown's starting to look a little better. We have a few amenities, but he notices people aren't repopulating the center part of the city. People are not moving back downtown from the suburbs where they had been leaving for decades. And finally, he realizes that unless he does something about the impression of the school district and something about the deferred maintenance that exists inside that inner city school district, people aren't going to be moving downtown. Public education is too important to the core of the city. And this was the largest school district in the state that was struggling. The school buildings were so bad that in one case, they took down some lockers and a wall fell down. The lockers were holding up a wall where we were educating our children. And the mayor's response was, well, why don't we do a MAPS for kids, a MAPS for the school district? And so accompanying with a bond issue that passed on the same night, the city used its tax base, and along with that bond issue, over $700 million to rebuild or refurbish every building in the inner city district. And so every building was either built anew or refurbished and touched in some way. And that program lasted 10 years, an an incredible investment in public education inside of Oklahoma City. And keep in mind, the city of Oklahoma City had no responsibilities for education. That was supposed to be funded independently by the school districts, but they had mortgaged their political capital and couldn't pass their bond issues. And so after decades of deferred maintenance had piled up, the civic leadership, the mayor and the business leaders, determined at some level of an emergency and injected the $700 million to get the district back up to speed. Then in 2004, in this kind of rare elective lack of judgment, the citizens elect me. And so I come to office, you know, in in the wake of these two incredible predecessors who had done so much heavy lifting and so much of the hard stuff. And what I realize is that, you know, the the city is, is in a new position. It ought to be ready to take off 
ought to be economic development opportunities ahead. And so I start to try and figure out how I can bring enthusiasm to civics. So I would come before crowds like this in Oklahoma City, and I would, I would talk about all of the accolades that were suddenly starting to come our way. There would be some website or some magazine that would come out with top 30 cities to start a business, and we'd be like number 26. Or top 50 places to get a job, and we'd be like number 17. Well, we'd really never been on a list before, so this was really cool. And so I'm going around the city, and I'm talking about all these lists and how important they are and, and how this is a sign that validates our, all of our investments. And then, just as I'm showing that these lists are reflective of who we really are, comes the list of the most obese cities in the country. And there we are, number two, Oklahoma City. And, of course, the media immediately wants to know, what are you going to do about it, Mayor? And I had absolutely no idea. And I started examining obesity in our, in our community. I was trying to figure out, well, why do we have such a problem with obesity? What is it about our culture that seems to lend itself to, to, to this result? And I realized after examination that we had built an incredible quality of life if you happen to be a car. If you were a car, there could have been no better place for you to live than Oklahoma City. Our civil engineers had really been inspired through the years to see how fast can you get someone from here to here. And they were really good at it. We had three interstate highways that intersected in our city. So we had this incredible uh, amount of road work. And then we had this urban sprawl that just kept taking off and taking off. Remember in the beginning, land was free? Well, it's still fairly inexpensive. And so people just keep moving further and further away. And we had no traffic congestion. If you don't have any traffic congestion, 20 miles is 20 minutes. And people just keep moving further and further away. We also, though, had gone through what I will say a few decades of low standards. In other words, we hadn't required developers to do much on their own. They weren't building sidewalks in the suburban areas where people lived. And we had developed you know, hundreds of thousands of homes um, that had not been built to the highest of standards. And what I came to realize is you're not going to have businesses with high standards in a city with low standards. And Oklahoma City was exhibit A for a city that had developed low standards. And so I... I went to the zoo to draw attention to this problem, and I stood in front of the elephants, and I said, this city is going on a diet, and we're going to lose a million pounds. And that's kind of when all hell broke loose. <laughs> there was this complete, complete debate citywide of whether or not the mayor had the authority to put the city on a diet. <laughs> they completely missed the point. What I was trying to do was draw attention to the fact that we are an obese city, and our city's infrastructure is part of the problem. And so with this awareness campaign uh, fully developed, we developed a website, thecityisgoingonadiet.com, and ultimately 48,000 people signed up pledging to lose weight. And it took us four years, but we lost the million pounds. And so our city started to do better on the list of the most obese cities in the country. In fact, one 
Men's Health magazine came out and called us one of the healthiest cities in the country. Just a few years after we had started this initiative to watch our weight and to start thinking better about our own health. So finally it comes time for MAPS 3, which was the proposal that I as a mayor was suggesting the voters should pass. And inside of MAPS 3, we started putting investment in our infrastructure that would be healthier. So we took our downtown grid, which had been completely designed for cars. It was five lanes, one way, and it was, it was almost like it was an exit strategy to see how fast you could get people out of downtown and into the suburbs where they belong. And so, you know, at 5 o'clock, people would get on these one-way streets. Well, I'll give you an example. Okay, let's say you're trying to cross the street in this era at 5 o'clock. You would push the walk, the, the, the sign that said walk, don't walk, and you're waiting on your turn. And pretty soon the, the light you know, signals for you to go, and the cars are starting to, to rev their engines. And you jump off the curb, and you take about two steps, and now it's flashing, don't walk. And you've still got four and a half lanes to go. And you're starting to lose faith in the system. And so you start walking faster, and then you start jogging, and just as you got to the other curb, you would leap to the pavement, and the cars would roar down behind you. That's how we treated pedestrians in downtown Oklahoma City. But we came up with an idea called Project 180. We took 180 acres downtown, and we completely redesigned them. We narrowed the streets. We actually took capacity out of our street, built more on-street parking, and fully landscaped it to try and create a downtown where the pedestrian would feel welcome. Now, in the wake of all this, the city's economy starts to grow and starts to prosper, and things are starting to look better. And it, it, it appears that Oklahoma City started to turn the table in about 2015 to 2020 when the population really started to increase. So, how many of you in here, when you were in school, read The Grapes of Wrath? Okay, I, that always amazes me. I, I, I used to think that was something that we forced our kids to read in Oklahoma to ensure they would feel bad about themselves. <laughs> but the, the Grapes of Wrath is a story by John Steinbeck, and it's basically about a really poor Oklahoma family in the 1930s in one of those types of the economic cycle that I mentioned was, was really, really low in the Depression. And uh, they've given up. They've, they've given up on Oklahoma. They put everything they own in a truck, and they're getting on Route 66, and they're heading west. And they're going to California for hope. They're going with the idea that there may be more prosperous times ahead for their family. They're going so their children may have a better opportunity than they've had. And now when you look at the Census Bureau statistics, it looks like the grandchildren of that generation are coming back. It's the wrath of grapes. <laughs> Tens of thousands of people who live in California are now relocating to Oklahoma City. And why are they going? For the exact same reason those grandparents left. A more prosperous opportunity. Housing prices that they can afford. No traffic congestion an abundance of fresh water and clean air. And these are amenities that a lot of people in the lower 48 do not take for granted. They don't like any of those things. And you're talking about a generation of highly educated young people that has choices and opportunities, and they're highly mobile and willing to relocate. Their sense of quality of life is different from my generation. My generation in Oklahoma City left. 
There weren't jobs available if you were highly educated and came of age in the 1980s. And so most of my high school classmates went to Dallas, so they went to California, or they came to Anchorage. But they weren't able to stay around Oklahoma City. Now, as you can imagine, being, being the mayor for 14 years, I uh, went in front of the voters several times. You know, I, I ran for city council, and then I ran for mayor four times. And I was also fronting a series of initiatives, um, lending my credibility or perceived credibility to the school districts and the bond issues and the MAPS proposals. And time and time again, I found myself in front of an audience, typically not this large in some you know, suburban neighborhood meeting, where I'm pleading my case and I'm trying to get the potential voters to see it my way, hoping they'll go to the polls and vote for me or vote for whatever initiative I was pushing. And when I'm going through that process, I noticed a, a, a repeating scene. I would see someone at the back of the room that was scowling. And I came to the conclusion that they didn't like taxes, they don't like downtown, and they don't like me. And when I had lost the intellectual argument to convert them to my way of thinking, when I was at my wit's end to try and figure out how I can reach that person and get them to see it my way, I would close with this. I would say, well, all I can tell you is we're creating a city where your kid and your grandkid are going to choose to live. Oh, they hate that argument because they knew it was true. In Oklahoma City, they had seen that generation of young people leave, not because they didn't like Oklahoma City or didn't like their parents, but there wasn't any opportunity there, and so they left. And there's this sense now in Oklahoma City that we're much more likely to hold on to our young people and that we have a really good chance of attracting people from California or Texas or elsewhere to move in to Oklahoma City. As you know, I'm out of office now, but... Um, the latest Census Bureau statistics came out in 2020. And between 2010 and 2020, Oklahoma City went from the 28th largest city to the 20th largest city. We passed eight cities in 10 years. And really, it comes back to what Mayor Norick figured out the hard way. And that is the secret to economic development is about creating a city where people want to live. And that's our story. Thanks very much for being so attentive. I really great great to be here. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us today for Addressing Alaskans. Today's program was the Anchorage Economic Development Corporation's three-year outlook luncheon. You can find this full program and AEDC's report on the Addressing Alaskans page on alaskapublic.org. I'm Ammon Swenson. Thanks for listening. Addressing Alaskans is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Theme music is by Patrick Lee. The views expressed are those of the hosts and participants and do not reflect KSKA or its underwriters. To let us know about an upcoming community event that you would like to hear on Addressing Alaskans, go to our website at alaskapublic.org and click on Contact Us at the bottom of the page. Life Informed. This is Alaska Public Media.